We sing of God's grace because the Scripture calls us to sing of His grace and be reminded of it. God's grace towards us is His unmerited favor. We are not deserving and yet He is gracious towards us. And we celebrate that as we come to His Word this morning. If you would, if you've not already, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 18. Uh, If you're new this morning, we want to welcome you. Thank you for visiting with us and letting you know that we have been walking through the book of Genesis we believe here at Bloomfield Baptist that God has revealed Himself to through His Word. And so in order to know God, we must know Him through His Word as He has revealed Himself to us. And so we have been walking through the book of Genesis verse by verse. And today we come to chapter 18 as we have been looking at an interaction between God and Abraham through which God has made a covenant with Abraham. God has called Abraham to follow Him and He's given him a promise A promise that it would seem by human standards it's taking a long time to fulfill, but a promise that God will certainly fulfill in His timing. And we see the fruition of that promise as we now get into Genesis 18 and moving forward of this child that has been promised to Abraham and to Sarah. So if you would follow along with me as we read Genesis 18, we're going to look at the first 15 verses this Lord's Day of Genesis 18. This is what God's Word says to us. And the Lord appeared to him, appeared to Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, If I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servants. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servants. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? He said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah, so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. If you would, pray with me for our time in God's Word. Father, we come to You in Jesus' name this Lord's Day, acknowledging that You are holy and just 
and right and good and gracious and merciful. Perhaps we see that nowhere more clear than when we see the extent to which you have reached out to us to have a relationship with us through Jesus Christ, your son. As we repent and have faith, the opportunity you've called us, Lord, to walk in faith with you. Father, help us to do that. Help us to learn more of what that looks like as we look to your word and study it this Lord's Day. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we come to to study this word, we are aware that not everyone believes this is entirely the word of God. Probably one of the most famous individuals to ever dissect the Bible and say what he believed was perhaps from the Lord, about the Lord. What was not was our third president, Thomas Jefferson, who in 1820 actually took a razor and began to cut sections out of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to piece together what he would later refer to as the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Jefferson was like a number of people in his day, people we would now refer to as deists. They believed that God was the Creator, that He had made all things, but they believed that He then gave man rational thought and that He was completely uninvolved in their day-to-day lives. And so anything that spoke of God's interaction with man, anything that spoke of God's revelation to man was then discounted. So you can imagine what the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth, what we now refer to as the Jefferson Bible, looks like. Anything referring to the deity of Christ, anything referring to any miracle of Christ is cut out and we're basically left with turn the other cheek and a few other moral lessons from Jesus. I'm not aware of any attempt Jefferson made to take this same approach to the Old Testament, but If he had, we would not have a Genesis 18 in the Jefferson Bible. Because Genesis 18, as well as the passages we've already studied in Genesis, are filled with encounters where God is personally reaching down to man. They are filled with the miraculous. They are filled with a personal God relating to His people. And we see that nowhere clearer than Genesis chapter 18, where the Lord Himself, sits down to have a meal with Abraham. We have before us not the Jefferson Bible, we have before us the holy inspired Word of God. And I pray that we will learn from it today as we study it, as we walk through this passage, beginning with the first point that I've put there in your notes. The point is this. The Lord is a friend to those who walk in faith with Him. What we clearly see in Genesis 18 is this relationship that God has with Abraham. We see it as we study it. To get there, it's important that we pause for a moment just to to, to look at something theologically that raises itself in this passage. As you study the Bible, we know that God is the triune God. He is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. We accept this, we understand this, we believe this. And so there are times then in the Old Testament where we see what theologians refer to as Christothenes. Christos, Christ. Thene comes from the Greek verb to manifest or be revealed. Where we see Christ Himself being manifested. Now you may ask, well how can that be? I mean, 
Christ was born in a manger. We know that the New Testament affirms the eternal nature of our Lord Jesus. John begins his gospel in chapter 1 by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Then in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Christ is eternal in His nature. And what you see in the Old Testament are times when you have before the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, you have the Lord Himself, fully God, appearing as a man, interacting with people. We believe that's exactly what's happening here in Genesis chapter 18. We'll build towards that, but I need to start off by saying this is not just an encounter that Abraham has with three random individuals, nor is it an encounter where he has with just three messengers from God. I think it's very clear as we walk through this passage, this is the Lord Himself accompanied by two angels. We'll get to that as we walk through this, beginning with verse 1. says, The Lord appeared to Abraham. Now the text doesn't tell us if Abraham fully understood at that point that this was the Lord appearing to him. But it makes it clear that Abraham knew something was going on here. Uh, He knew there was something special about this visit. Notice how he responds to these three visitors. Verse 2 says, when he saw them, he ran. Verse 6 says, Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and had her get the flour to make these cakes. There's a sense here where Abraham knows special visitors. Now, we've talked before about how Abraham would have had visitors in his day. This would have been customary. In that day, as people were traveling, there were no hotels per se or restaurants or places they would stop. And in the area of the world that Abraham was, uh, he would have been a, his area would have been a place where people sojourning through would have stopped. And we talked about how that might have been a humiliating experience for Abraham previously called Abram, his name meaning exalted father. God changes his name to Abraham, being father of many. And we talked about how this would have been a difficult exchange for Abraham as people stopped. What's your name? Abraham. Oh, father of many. How many children do you have? Well, I have one. I have the promise from God of another. This would have been a humiliating experience for Abraham, and yet we see This is going to be anything but a humiliating experience for him. He he knows there is something special about these visitors. Perhaps he is aware already this is the Lord himself. Perhaps God is revealing that to him as this visit goes on. He knows it's something special. And so he makes preparation. Think about what things would be like in your home if you, you knew that you were going to have a special visitor And perhaps you found out at the very last minute, the phone rings and you find out someone very important, someone very special will be there in a matter of an hour or two hours. How would you respond? I realize many of you, your house is always perfectly kept. The meals are always ready. But for the rest of us, begin to throw the dirty clothes in the stove and shove things in that one room that you never let people see when they visit your house. You You would make haste and you would quickly try to get things ready. Uh, You might run down to Kroger and buy some things and quickly dump them into your casserole dishes to make it look as if you prepared a meal. Why? Because you want to put out your very best for that special guest. What we have here is not just Abraham trying to put on appearances. We have Abraham here preparing for a very special meal. 
He goes to great lengths. He's making bread. He even goes to one of his servants, has them take a calf and slaughter it and prepare it for a meal. He is going to have a feast with these visitors. And these visitors are going to have a feast with him. Verse 8 tells us that, that they took all of this that Abraham brought them, he set it before them, and he, they sat there and they ate. Now this is a rather um, remarkable occurrence. It may not seem like that at first, but remember, this is the Lord Himself having a meal with Abraham. This is the only time in the Old Testament we ever see the Lord eat a meal that's prepared for him. Now, there are other times when people put food out before the Lord as sacrifices, but, but never do we see an encounter like this where the Lord himself sits and eats and has fellowship with man. That's not until we get to the New Testament, and our Lord Jesus Christ does that rather frequently. We celebrate a meal with the Lord when we take the Lord's Supper. We celebrate what it means to have fellowship with the Lord. That's why this is special. Abraham and having this meal with the Lord is having a very special time with him. Why? Because this is something that you do for fellowship. This is something you do with a friend. And that's exactly who Abraham becomes known to be. Not only is this the only person in the Old Testament who shares a meal with the Lord, this is the only person in the Old Testament record who's ever referred to as a friend of God. And think about that for a moment. As we've studied Abraham, we've seen his failures. There are many. We've seen time and time again how he failed to trust God, how he failed to believe God, how he just failed. So how does Abraham move from being a failure to being a friend of God? The same way that you and I do. By the utter grace of God. See, Abraham is not presented to us in the Scripture as one who had it all together and the Lord sees him and says, oh, well, I can really use that guy. (laughs) Abraham is one that God calls and he consistently fails and struggles. And yet in his struggle to walk by faith, God in His grace calls him His friend. And for us gathered today, that's exactly what God does for us through the Gospel. Jesus says in John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone may lay down his life for his friends. And you can imagine as he says this to the disciples, they're wondering, well, well, who's his friend? I mean, you see them almost wrestling with that question of not only who is his friend, who's his best friend? Who's going to have a place in the kingdom with him? Who's really a friend of, of the Lord? Jesus answers that question in his next statement in John 15. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Jesus doesn't just give here a blanket extension of friendship. You're my friends no matter what you do. Isn't that how we want to think about it? You know, a true friend will be your friend no matter what. It's what we say. And yet Jesus here says His friendship with us is conditional on something. That we do what He's commanded us to do. And that's why when we come to this whole question of friendship with God, some of you, as you hear that expression, being a friend of God, you don't feel like a friend of God today. Perhaps you feel like there's a great distance between you and God today. Perhaps you feel you want God to be your friend, but you feel there's this distance there. As a pastor, I 
receive that question or that statement often from people. Well, pastor, I just feel like there's this distance between me and God. Let me ask you a question. Who do you think has moved? I mean, do you think that God comes to us like some type of middle school friendship and one day he's our friend and the next day he's not? You know, we're best friends. No, we're not. I'm your friend now. No, I'm not. Is that the picture you have of God? If it is, it's not a biblical one. Now, the picture we have of God in the scripture is Jesus saying, you are my friend if you do what I command what I command you to do. If you will follow me, if you will trust me, if you will deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me, then we will be friends. And that's why Jesus offers to share a meal with us in the Lord's Supper. Just like God is offering this meal, the Lord's offering this meal to Abraham. But you'll notice when Paul teaches about the Lord's Supper, there's a condition there. If you come to the Lord's table and you are unrepentant in your sin, Paul says you better be careful. You are bringing judgment on yourself if you profane the Lord by saying, I'm going to share this meal and I'm going to have fellowship with Jesus, but I'm not going to obey Jesus. See, the Scripture doesn't give us that option. The Scripture says then don't receive this meal. It's not saying we all have to be perfect to receive it. It is saying we need to walk in faith and be repentant. And that's what the scripture consistently calls us back to. is to walk in faith. As we walk in faith, we read God's word. We, we grow in our understanding of it. We, we grow in faith. We walk in faith. And as we do that, we come to see more of who God is from his word. And we depend less on thinking of who God is based on our feelings and our emotion and whoever our culture tells us he is. We need to know who the biblical God truly is. And we see him in this passage. Specifically, we see this of him, and it's the second point I've put in your notes. We see that the Lord is a God who promises his people that which is humanly impossible. I did not say that which seems humanly impossible. What God does is not just say, well, let me show you something really difficult. God reveals His nature by doing that which is humanly impossible. Look at the exchange between the Lord and Abraham. In verse 9 there, the Lord and the angels all said to Abraham, where is Sarah your wife? Now up to this point in the Scripture, we don't have any account of Abraham saying to these three strangers, let me tell you about Sarah and she's my wife. And so I believe in this passage very much that the Lord is saying, where is Sarah your wife? Why? Because he's the Lord and he knows Sarah. He named Sarah. He gave her that new name. And he's asking Abraham, where's your wife? He knows Sarah's name. One of the most personal things about you is your name. And that's why it seems so impersonal when somebody doesn't get it right. When they don't know your name, you know? You have that experience in church where you're seeing someone who you kind of know, but you don't know their name, and you're trying not to tell them you don't know their name, and, hey, brother, have you met my other brother over here? We're all brothers and sisters. What it is when someone acts like they know you, but they can't even say your name right. Call customer service. Having a problem with my computer? Oh, we can take care of that, sir. Uh, first, just tell me your name, because they want to be personal with you. 
My name's Richard Carlisle. Well, thank you, Mr. Carlisle. It's, I'm glad you called today. No, it's Carwile, C-A-R-W-I-L-E. Oh, Carwilly. Well, thank you for calling today, Mr. Carwilly. I feel so connected at that moment. And some other things. Why? Because that, that's totally impersonal. If you don't know what my name is, let's be honest, we're not real close. And if I don't know what your name is, and please don't test me as you leave today and ask me, I do pray for you, maybe not by name. But seriously, if we sit down to have a meal together every Wednesday at noon, and after a year of that, I look to you and I say, I can't, I can't remember your name. Probably not going to feel real connected. Your, your name is something very personal about you. And God here is personally relating to Abraham and Sarah. Where is Sarah your wife, Abraham? God knows exactly where Sarah is, by the way. But we see this in his exchange with man and his calling man out to himself. And then the text goes on to make sure we understand how humanly impossible it is that Sarah would have a child. Lord asks where she is, then the Lord says, I'm going to return to you this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now Sarah's listening to this at the tent door behind him Sarah probably already knows about this revelation Abraham's already received from the Lord they may have had this conversation and she may have laughed at Abraham just like she's about to laugh at the Lord verse 11 God wants to make sure we understand okay this is impossible from a human perspective now Abraham and Sarah were old now I've taken a little heat recently when I make comments about people being old those of you who don't consider yourself old make sure I know you're not really old yet you may be there's no debate about Abraham and Sarah. He's a hundred. If you're here this morning and you're a hundred, God bless you, and you are old. You really are, and we're thankful you're here. But, but the text is trying to help us understand that this is not just a matter of, well, he wasn't so old. Or, no, no. Abraham and Sarah were old. Advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. What the text is telling us is there is no human way she's going to have a child. It is impossible. And yet, what is the Lord saying? He is saying, oh yes, she is. Why? Because that is what God does. God confounds the wisdom of man. God humbles us in our supposed wisdom. And God reveals Himself to us in a miraculous way. This is the other end of the spectrum of what Jefferson believed about God. This distant, impersonal God who was not involved in the affairs of man. This is a God who is involved, who is causing, who is sovereign, who is relating to His people. What seems humanly impossible is possible. And I don't believe God's just doing this to try to marvel Abraham and Sarah. I don't think God's even doing this because Abraham and Sarah were so faithful to pray for this child and they couldn't have and they're praying and praying and now God's going to give them a child. I think ultimately what God is doing here is He's bringing glory to Himself and He is also pointing us towards something. When you come to a text where there's an impossible situation, a 90-year-old woman who up to this point was barren anyway. So even what was humanly possible, what was impossible for her. And God says He's going to give her a child. You need to ask yourself, 
What's more impossible than a 90-year-old woman who's been barren all her life getting pregnant by her 100-year-old husband? What's more impossible than that? Try a teenage girl who's a virgin named Mary. And God comes to her and says, Mary, you're going to have a child. See, God does that which seems so impossible to us in revealing the nature of who He is. And He's doing that in this text to help us understand who He truly is. And as He does that, He calls Abraham and Sarah to do what He's calling you and I to do this Lord's Day. And that's the last point I've put in your notes. We are called to respond in faith and to believe the Word of God. And that's exactly what Sarah does not do. Sarah, you notice in the text, essentially laments how old she is. She laughs at this. She said, this isn't going to happen. I'm worn out. My husband's worn out. I don't believe this. There's no faith from Sarah. This is not Sarah on her knees going, God, oh, I just believe you can do it. This is Sarah saying, no, (laughs) no, I don't think this is going to happen. And yet, it truly will happen even despite her lack of faith. God calls us to respond in faith and to believe. I think the pinnacle of this passage, perhaps of the entire Old Testament, is verse 14. And God's response to Abraham. See, he confronts Abraham on why does Sarah laugh? (laughs) She's going to have a child. Verse 14, he says this. Is anything too hard for the Lord? See, if you believe that there's something that is, then there's a problem. And it's not with God, it's with what you believe about Him. That that word hard in the Hebrew can be translated as extraordinary or wonderful. God is saying, is there anything that you can imagine that's too wonderful for me to do? Is there anything that you can imagine that's too extraordinary for me to do, Abraham? See, God is revealing Himself to Abraham and saying, there's nothing I can't do, Abraham. And He's going to show him that. And not only is He going to show him, but look at how personal this is. The Lord says, I'm going to come back. I want to be here when you have that child, Abraham. I want to see the look on your face. Abraham, I'm God. And there's nothing that's impossible for me. Friend, there is nothing that is impossible for the Lord. And as you read through the pages of Scripture, you see this echoed time and time again. Often in the lives of people who are dealing with very difficult situations. You come to the book of Job. If you know the book of Job, you know Job is about suffering and suffering and suffering. Job's here seeking to walk by faith in the Lord, and yet calamity and suffering strike. And they come, and there's this conversation between Job and his friends. And, and in that, they, they kind of slip in their understanding of God and their questioning of God. And ultimately, Job comes around in chapter 42, and he just repents. And he acknowledges, God, you're God over everything. You're sovereign. This is what he says. God, I know you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He almost quotes what the Lord says to Abraham. Lord, you can do anything. Lord, there's nothing too extraordinary for you. 
keep reading through Scripture, see people like Jeremiah. Jeremiah we refer to as the weeping prophet because he's called to consistently preach repentance to a people who don't want to repent. That's a miserable job. And that's what Abraham, I mean, that's what Jeremiah is called to do. And in his call to preach to these unrepentant people, he surely has to ask himself the question at some point, Lord, can you even make them repent? But Jeremiah comes to this understanding. Jeremiah 32. Ah, Lord God. It is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you, Lord. That, that understanding of God keeps moving forward. That question of God keeps coming up to the point you get to the New Testament. And here you have that teenage virgin girl Mary being given revelation by an angel that she's going to have a child in an in a impossible, inconceivable way. And she says, how can this happen? How can this be? This is impossible. And that angel says to her almost verbatim, when you translate the Hebrew to the Greek of what it is that the Lord says to Abraham, nothing will be impossible with God, Mary. There is nothing too extraordinary for our God. Nothing is impossible. You have our Lord Jesus saying this Himself when the disciples are questioning Him about salvation. There's this rich young ruler who Jesus has said, it's really hard for guys like that to get into heaven. His riches are they're an idol in his life. He wants to know what he should do, and I tell him what he should do, and he won't do what I tell him he should do. There's really not much of a chance for him. And the disciples say, well, this is just impossible. If he can't, then who can? And God reminds them. Jesus says, listen, you want to understand the mystery of the Gospel? Understand this. With God, all things are possible. Do you believe that today? Or have you fallen into a picture of God that's not so far from Thomas Jefferson? Yeah, God's out there somewhere. And yeah, God's a creator. But He doesn't care about me. And he's certainly isn't involved in the details of my life. Friend? Friend of God? No. Friend, realize there's a better way. Because the Scripture tells us what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 as he's praying for the church. This is his prayer. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul says... You want to know who God is? He's not just a God who can do what you ask Him to do. Most anybody can do what you ask Him to do. No, He's a God who can do exceedingly, abundantly, more than you can ask, more than you can even think. Have you had that experience, believer? Where you look at a situation and maybe you were asking for this, you, you were holding up your little thimble to God saying Lord if you just give me this much and he just overflowed that thing and he did in your life more than you even asked him to do scripture says that's the God that we serve but 
but is that who you understand God to be? Because ultimately that's the question. Do, do you believe his word and do you trust it? Or are you willing to walk in faith according to it? Because even as you walk in faith, there will be times when you feel that God is distant. And there will be times when you wonder, Lord, are you listening to me? And in those moments, you need and I need Genesis 18. And we need to get on our knees and we need to acknowledge before the Lord, Lord, there is nothing that's too hard for you. And we just keep asking and asking and asking and asking and trusting and walking with Him. And as we do, we get to experience what Abraham experienced. We can be called a friend of God. And as a friend, we receive a promise. Perhaps God does not remove the suffering, the pain, whatever it is we've asked Him to for now, but the promise is one day He he will for those who walk in faith with Him. Are you walking in faith with Him this Lord's day? Or do you feel distant? If you do, be reminded it's not Him that's moving. Be reminded that you and I certainly are moving one direction or the other. We like to believe this lie that somehow we can just stand still spiritually. That, that we can kind of progress to a point we'll just, we'll just hang out for a while. We'll just kind of pull off the highway. We'll just sit here at a rest stop. There are no spiritual rest stops. You are either walking with the Lord or you are falling behind. And if you sense yourself, feel yourself, believe that you are becoming more and more distant from God in your relationship with Him, there's a remedy for that that the Scripture gives. And this, this illustration of eating with Jesus, we see a picture of it in Revelation 3. In Revelation 3, God is writing to the churches, and one of those churches in particular, He refers to as a lukewarm church. You know what He says to that lukewarm church? He says, be zealous and repent. I want you to run like Abraham ran to get that calf. But I want you to run towards me and I want you to repent. And then he gives this great promise. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will dine with him and he with me. That's the fellowship that the Lord offers us. And that's the fellowship we receive as we walk in faith and we repent. So believer, if there's sin in your life today, repent and walk in faith and dine with Jesus. Unbeliever, what's it going to take for you to finally acknowledge that the God of the universe is relating to you very personally today through the Gospel and calling you to faith and repentance and to walk with Him? Wherever you sit this morning, the application is the same. Have faith and repent. Have faith and repent. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you would, pray to that end with me. Father, we thank you for our Lord's words to Abraham and his words to us. We thank you that we see Abraham as one in the Scripture who while he failed... He was called a friend of God and that Jesus says we can be his friend as well if we will obey him. Lord, I pray for any here this morning who is in disobedience. Perhaps some who haven't heard a word of this entire message and even now they're just thinking, how much longer before I can leave? 
Lord, would you pierce the hard, callous heart with the gospel that they might see and receive your grace that comes as we acknowledge that we are sinners, that we are indeed deserving of your wrath for our sin. But in your grace, Christ went to the cross for us. One who knew no sin, took on sin, that we might receive his righteousness. Lord, would you overwhelm them with your spirit that they might confess that Jesus truly is Lord, that they might walk in faith with him. Lord, for those who are brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, who are struggling to walk in faith, who feel distant from you, Lord, would you overwhelm them today with the need to repent and walk in faith, to trust you, to believe you, to realize who you are. You are a God that does the impossible. Would you lead us to trust you for that? We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.